0: Good morning Linworth. I like that. I'm going to bring my talents to Linworth Road. That's guitar playing. Here's a big game Saturday night, in case you weren't sure hear about that. Buckeye fans? Nittany Lion fans? All three of us? <laughs> well, I hope you're doing okay this morning. You ready to jump into this? Ready to jump into it? You know, Above all the skills that parents need, cook, chef, driver, nurse, logistics engineer, counselor, tutor, parents desperately need the skill and training of a lawyer. Why? Well, those of you whose kids are middle school and high school know the answer to that question. Those of you whose children are still younger don't know yet that some children possess and other worldly power of reasoning when they need to avoid a painful consequence. They can create the most fantastic stories to explain why and how something that appears so plain to everybody else who's reasonable is not plain and reasonable to them. Even when you're an eyewitness, your children can create an alternative reality that makes you question your most basic senses (laughs) or theirs. Parents need legal training when you have a child like that. The skills to cross-examine, call witnesses, sift through the rules of evidence, establish the truth. Some of you have a child like that. We did. Not anymore. He's an adult now. But I won't ask for a show of hands of how many of you were children like that, (laughs) living in your alternative reality. Well, the Apostle Paul had tremendous powers of reasoning. He had the training of a lawyer, how to establish an argument, as the book of Romans clearly shows. It is clear that he had a towering intellect. But there were people working against Paul as he sought to establish churches all over the Roman Empire in the first century. And it appears they sought to take Paul's strength and use it against him. For one of their accusations was he was making up this gospel Message. He was using his powers of reasoning over us. It was not divine, it was from him. Now, this background helps set the stage for our next section in the book of Galatians in our series called From Shackles to Sonship. Won't you stand as I read this passage? I'm going to read it from a little bit of a different version this morning, but you can still follow along. It's very close page 972 in the pew bible paul wrote this beginning in verse 11 dear brothers and sisters i want you to understand that the gospel message i preach is not based on mere human reasoning i received my message from no human source and no one taught me instead i received it by direct revelation from jesus christ you know what i was like when i followed the jewish religion How I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. But even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. When this happened, I did not rush out to consult any human being. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away into Arabia and later I returned to the city of Damascus. Then 3 years later I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days. The only other apostle I met at that time was James, the Lord's brother. I declare before God that what I am writing to you is not a lie. After that visit I went north into the provinces of Syria and Cilicia. And still the churches in Christ that are in Judea didn't know me personally. And they knew, all they knew was that people were saying, the one who used to persecute us is now preaching the very faith he tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, take these words, I pray, And move them and sow them and put them into our hearts in a way that really changes the way we think and what we believe. And I pray this morning that this gospel message could bring healing both to our minds and our hearts. And Father, I pray this morning as um, we're aware that there's so many needs, so much hurt this morning, so many people suffering physically and medically, and we pray for our congregation, Father, that you would bring healing, that you would bring the presence of Jesus to everyone this morning that is suffering physically in our body. Um, Thank you for the presence and the comfort that belongs and comes from you alone, Father. Now open up our minds and hearts to hear, to listen, to receive every good gift you have for us this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Verse 11, Paul repeats the point he's been making that he did not receive this gospel message from any human being, neither was it the result of his own power of reasoning. And he affirms it with, you see, that a gravity of oath. I am not lying. Rather, Jesus revealed it directly to me. The story of that encounter with Jesus is told in Acts chapter 9. Paul was en route to Damascus to terrorize Christians. Jesus, in a resurrected body, appeared to Paul and said to him, Why? Do you persecute me? That encounter led to Paul becoming a Christian. After about 15 years, he became a missionary. And his first ventures were into a region called Asia Minor, which today we know as Turkey. He preached the gospel message and gathered those who responded into churches much like ours. And this book in Galatians is a letter he wrote back just a few short years later. We learned last week from Pastor Nick that Paul was forced into this uncomfortable position of defending himself. Here's why. And again, pay this is just critical for you to try to understand. It's a, it's a subtle difference, but try to capture this. Paul's message at this early stage in the development of the Christian faith was a little different. It was a little different than the message of the Christian church in Jerusalem. And the Christian church in Jerusalem, that's where all the heavy hitters were. The apostles, Peter and John. It was indeed the mothership. Now... It was still less than two decades after Jesus had died and resurrected. And the church in Jerusalem had not totally separated itself from its Jewish roots. And they blurred the line between being Jewish and being Christian. If you are non-Jew, this made the message of Jesus confusing. Confusing. Are you asking me to become a believer in Jesus or to become Jewish? May have been the question. And to a Gentile, that latter question, Are you asking me to become a Jew? Was obviously a barrier. Now, fairly quickly the church would come together and work out this difference. They clarified the message that following Jewish law was not necessary to become a Christian. Life in the power of the Spirit had replaced the customs, the dietary laws, the rights associated with being Jewish. This is what Paul makes very clear as he describes the new covenant in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But before the church came to this resolution, or perhaps even after it, there remained an overzealous wing of the church in Jerusalem. They were called Judaizers. Self-appointed, they took it upon themselves to make sure Jewish law was practiced wherever Jesus was preached. They continued to insist, You must become Jewish In order to become a Christian. Every male must be circumcised. That was problematic. (laughs) That was a problem. Jewish law must be observed. And this was not an easy proposition as Paul preached Jesus to a a non-Jewish, to a Gentile world. So these new Christians in Galatia had a very fragile hold on the gospel. They were persuaded by this fervent group to abandon the message Paul preached. Hey, and by the way, they asked, who put Paul in charge anyway? He's a very slick salesman. Oh, yes. He makes things easy for you. Conveniently shaving off requirements, no pun intended. Shaving off requirements to make the message more attractive. Now, the New Galatians, or this exhortation to obey the Jewish law, had strong moralistic overtones. How can you turn your back on hundreds of years of tradition? How can you call yourself a real Christian? The Judaizers were looking at life through a narrow lens, a lens that was in transition. They were looking backwards. But Paul was looking forward. Now Paul explains in other places, it's really cool, the truths that Jesus had revealed to him. Places like Ephesians chapter 3. That revelation or that mystery that Christ revealed to Paul included a new vision of humanity. A humanity remade and redeemed Differences reconciled through the cross. Jews and Gentile, a new people of God made up of Jews and Gentiles. That mystery included the message of Jesus going out into the entire world. And for these things to happen, unity in the church, the message of Christ going to all the world, Paul seemed to grasp it alone. Paul seemed to grasp it first, that for these things to happen, they must be free, the message must be free of the things that made it only Jewish. So, getting back to verse 11 then, Paul enters into this awkward place of defending himself, not for the sake of his own reputation, but because of the tremendous truths that were at play. Now, I set this stage, this background, for a reason. The question, did a human being make up this gospel story? This question continues to be asked today. Maybe a friend has asked you that question. Isn't the story of Jesus just made up? Certainly, our culture asks the question this whole Jesus and church thing, isn't it come from a human being? As followers of Jesus, two thousand years later, we think about maybe we wrestle with the same question, or wonder how to talk about it with our non-Christian friends, or this morning you yourself may be the one who's seeking the truth, and these are the very kinds of questions you're asking. Well, I think it might be helpful then to go through and to unpack how Paul responds to this concern. And Paul makes two points on why he believes the gospel that came to him was supernatural. Two points. One, he describes an unexplainable transformation. And secondly, He describes an unexplainable message. Let's look at these two, beginning with an unexplainable transformation. Paul cites his own story as proof that the message was supernatural. For what other reasons, he says, but a personal meeting with Jesus? What else could have deterred me but a personal encounter with Christ from my holy mission to wipe out the church. Paul, we know from the biographical data here and other places, Paul was at the top of his class. He was a rising star at this time. He was an an Ivy Ligger. He was taught by the best. He was incredibly conscientious and strict, rigorous, in his obedience to the law. The words that Paul uses here in Greek indicate an over-the-top intense passion. He saw the church as a direct threat to the traditions he cherished, and therefore they were an offense to God himself. Given the evidence in Scripture, I am of the opinion that Paul viewed himself as one in a long line of great defenders of the Jewish faith. This was pointed out by a commentator named Tom Schreiner. For example, in Numbers chapter 25, more than a thousand years earlier, there was a man named Phineas who proved to be a passionate defender of God. He killed an Israelite man and a Midianite woman who were sexually engaged. It was forbidden by the law. And God stopped the plague because of what Phineas did. Centuries later, the prophet Elijah also proved to be a courageous defender of God by killing the prophets of Baal. About 175 years before Christ, Paul may have recalled Matthias, who was equally zealous during the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, who had brutally and was brutally repressing Judaism. Matthias killed a Jew who was about to offer an illegitimate sacrifice and then he tore down the altar. Because Paul's view of God was twisted, because Paul's view of God was obsessively nationalistic, he believed he was pleasing God as he imprisoned, terrorized, and even murdered Christians. Look at what he said to a king named Agrippa while on trial. This is in Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 9. Paul said this to Agrippa. I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priest, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison. And I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. What is Paul saying? He's saying, I thought I was on mission for God. And here as he tells his story, he's saying, who else... Or what else could have stopped me from that mission? The entire trajectory of my life was pointed in a single direction to protect the traditions of my fathers. Nothing, nothing inside of me could have ever created such a 180 degree turn. Now there are many contemporary stories like Paul's. There's a story of Nabil Kirshi. You might have heard Nabil's story. He grew up in a very loving, tight knit Muslim family. His parents were devout members of the Ahmadi sect of Islam. And according to Justin Taylor, by the age of five, Nabil had read the entire Quran in Arabic and had memorized many chapters. His parents trained him in apologetics. Are proofs of the Islamic faith so he could defend the Islamic faith or so he could refute other religions like Christianity? Well, Nabil left home and went to college, and three things happened. One, he met a very genuine, authentic Christian in his undergraduate experience. Secondly, he did independent research on the life of Muhammad. And thirdly, He had three very vivid dreams about the truthfulness of the Christian faith. Nabil began to reconsider the beliefs that he grew up with and began to think seriously about becoming a Christian. Seriously struggling, he traveled to Canada, to Washington, D.C., to even England to talk with the most knowledgeable Muslims he could find who could answer the arguments against Islam that he was wrestling with. In the end, he found the arguments not nearly as strong as those for the Christian faith. His conversation or his conversion came then years later when he was a medical student while reading the Gospel of Matthew and he began to follow Jesus. And Nabeel wrote these words, I should say this, he began to follow Jesus at tremendous personal cost, a cost that I know I can't really appreciate or understand. Nabil wrote these words with tremendous grief about his parents' response to him becoming a believer. This is what he wrote. My mother has tears in her eyes whenever I see her, a quiver in her voice whenever I hear her, an absolute despair on her face in sleep, And while awake, never have I met a mother more devoted to her children than my mother. And how did I repay her? In her mind, decades worth of physical and emotional investment ended up with her son espousing views that are completely antithetical to everything she stands for. And about his father, he said, my father, a loving, gentle and big-hearted man with every ounce of emotional strength expected of a 24-year veteran of the U.S. military broke down for the first time I had ever seen. To be the cause of the only tears I ever saw fall from his eyes is not easy to live with. To hear him, the man who stood tallest in my life from the day I was born, the archetype of my strength, my father, to hear him say that because of me, he felt his backbone had been ripped out from behind him. Feels like patricide, which is the murder of parents. Nabil searched out the truth claims of the Christian faith, and he found them so compelling that he determined he must choose Jesus even over family loyalties. He found Jesus worth following, and he became convinced that these were not human words, but like Paul, they were divine words. For a few short years, Nabil wrote, he spoke widely, he published three books on why and how he became a Christian, the most famous you may have heard of is it. called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. He died just last year at only 34 of stomach cancer. Stories like this, and there are many, a 180 degree turn from a single trajectory, like Paul's, make us wonder, could this gospel just be words made up by a very smart person? Or are they from God? This is the first point. An unbelievable transformation. But I think there's something, a second point that Paul makes here. There's something about the message itself and how the message is received. Let me explain. Look at verse 15. In describing his own story, look at what Paul says. Even before I was born... God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. As Paul looked back on his own story and as he, I I think, when he was in Arabia, my sense and my opinion, because of how many citations he makes, I believe that Paul in Arabia there those three years was pouring over the Old Testament and either through that or through his own reflections, somehow Paul became acutely aware of the ancient and the sovereign purposes of God. He recognized that God called him a long time before he was ever born. Long before he ever lifted a finger for God. Long before a prayer was prayed or a sacrifice offered, long before he could prove his spiritual worthiness, demonstrate his merit, build up his spiritual resume, God called him actually knowing in advance that he would terrorize and seek to destroy the church. What kind of God does that? kind of God does that? What kind of God saves someone who is utterly undeserving and morally unfit? It's upside down. It's counterintuitive. It's nonsensical. It's otherworldly. Paul must have thought the world has never seen a God like this. What kind of God offers a salvation that you can't contribute anything towards? Where he does it all. And Paul concludes, what does he call this God? He calls this God a God of grace. Notice, in comparing Paul's message with those of the Judaizers, look how Paul continually Frames his message. He links together two words. Look at verse 6 in chapter 1. Verse 6 in chapter 1, Paul said, You are deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Verse 21, chapter 2. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness, which is simply a way of saying being rightly related to God, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Chapter 5, verse 4. You, who are trying to be justified by the law, in other words, made right through your obedience, have been alienated from Christ... You have fallen away from grace. In Acts 20, verse 24, Paul refers to his message as the gospel of God's grace. Notice the pattern. (laughs) Grace and gospel. Grace is how we become a Christian. The average person on the street believes that a Christian is someone who lives according to the example of Christ. Yet Paul implies throughout this book that we don't have the resources within ourselves to do it. It's impossible. The implication is is that we are helpless and we are lost. Verse 4 in chapter 1 says that Jesus rescued us To be rescued means you're drowning (laughs) and you're beyond any means to save yourself. You are completely reliant on another. Now being rescued is not the same as being given a second chance when we promise to get it right and to work things out and be better. No, Jesus on the cross did everything, everything that we need to be rightly related to God. He did everything to experience once and for all the judgment that our sins deserve. The penalty hanging over us, the judgment hanging over us, is forever removed because of grace. If you are a Christian, you have been rescued. Verse 5 in chapter 1. This is why God gets all the glory. He did it all for us. There is nothing in us that demonstrates our own essential goodness or worthiness. But as Tim Keller writes, there is a humbling truth that lies at the heart of Christianity. Keller said this, We love to be our own Savior. Our hearts love to manufacture glory for themselves. So we find messages of self-salvation extremely attractive, whether they are religious or secular. The gospel comes and turns them all upside down. It says, you are in such a hopeless position that you need a rescue that has nothing to do with you at all. And then it says, God in Jesus provides a rescue which gives you far more than any false salvation your heart may love to chase. Keller describes three different self-salvations. Here's number one. Religious self-salvation comes from the belief that my salvation is the direct result of the strength of my commitment. It's the direct result of having all the right beliefs and all the right behavior. I must generate a high degree of commitment, and I must maintain it in order to stay saved. This is a grave error taught in many churches. This makes our performance our Savior rather than Jesus' performance. Other churches focus on a religious salvation that is rule-based or ritual-based. Now, these churches mirror more closely the situation happening here in Galatia. In these churches, there's a highly regulated culture of how people eat, how they dress, how they date, how they educate their children, or even how they structure their time. These are legalistic churches, or they are highly authoritarian. You stay part of that group by regulating and conforming to external behaviors. Other churches have a highly complicated system of rituals and prayers. These behaviors can be practiced without any inner reflection or any uh, reflection on their true meaning. And they create those Prayers and rituals create a sense of an illusion of righteousness without any inner reality to match it. And finally, there is a secular self-salvation. It teaches that virtue and good works are enough to get to God. Therefore, the death of Jesus was unnecessary. But this obviously contradicts the gospel because it is exclusive What about the people that are bad? People not judged respectable by our cultural norms. Do they have no hope then? This flies against the very gospel that Jesus preached. Or, there is a secular salvation that encourages people to measure. It creates an environment. There is a secular salvation, widespread today, That encourages people to measure and regard themselves in such a way that they view themselves as tolerant, open, accepting, and therefore they are pleasing to God. But this secular salvation clouds the deep evil lying inside each of us. That in the right circumstance, or if denied a pleasure, or if pushed too hard, our so-called tolerance will give way. And the evil in our hearts erupts from its shadows out into the visible light. The Bible, in Isaiah 64, 6, the prophet said this, that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. This is a terrible image. It was spoken in a time when the prophet was utterly exasperated um, with the Jews of that day. They wore this same kind of cloak that we've been describing, either religious or secular, both. They wore that same cloak of self-righteousness. And all their religiosity to God was graphically, this is the meaning of this word, graphically, all of their religiosity, all of their self-righteousness was like a worn-out menstrual rag. You see, at the heart, religious or secular, they're the same. Did you catch that? The religious and secular salvations are essentially the same thing. Each group wears a cloak of self-righteousness. Each group embraces their own essential goodness. With each group all the glory goes to them for being good enough to earn heaven. These are fake gospels. (laughs) Really as Paul would say They're no gospel at all, according to his test. These are the approaches to God that we come up with when we rely on our own common sense, intuition, and reasoning because they make sense to us. Grace does not fit into that logic. Grace is love for the morally unfit, the self-righteous and non-righteous, those that think they're doing well, and those who know they're not. I believe grace was one reason Paul believed this gospel had to come from God. No human being was ever going to come up with something so scandalous. An unexplainable transformation and an unexplainable message. This is why Paul believed his gospel was genuinely supernaturally divine, and not made up. Paul's revelation was consistent with the core of what the disciples and the apostles taught, those who had actually been with Jesus. As to how the message was applied, eventually the apostles recognized that the Christian faith was a wholly separate wineskin from Judaism. God used the independently minded Paul to bring that about. It was back then, and it is not today, two messages, even as some scholars today still try to argue for this. It is one gospel, one way to God through faith in Jesus The gospel message was recognized by the early church as having the authenticity, the weight, the gravity of Jesus' life and words behind it. That is what gave it credibility. That is what gave it authority. And This is the same message of grace, the same message of grace that we believe and teach today. If you're seeking truth today, if you are considering the Christian faith, I hope that you understand today what it means to be a Christian and what it doesn't mean to be a Christian. And I hope you understand how amazing the grace of God is. He loves you right where you are, and you can receive him this morning. You can become a Christian, accept his grace just as you are without cleaning your life up first that's great news and as for those of you that are veteran Christians can I say to you this morning it is still amazing grace we were talking about this grace at our life group on Wednesday night and I was getting all worked up I was getting so excited it so lifted my spirits To think of a God who loves us this way and for all eternity His greatest pleasure will be to reveal more and more of His amazing grace. You know, what these early believers struggled with was not unique to them. There is a universal lesson here. This is it. The gospel always falls prey to additions are <laughs> to outright changes that seduce our pride. <laughs> we alter the gospel, we make changes to it because it seduces our pride. Changes that give us a shred of hope to attain a right standing before God by something inherently good inside of me. You see, when we as believers, feel shame. When we as Christians feel shame. Shame, guilt is when you feel bad for what you've done. Shame is when you feel bad for who you are. Okay? When we feel shame, it may be for a failure. It may be for a failed relationship. Maybe there's a bankruptcy in your past. Maybe there is sexual sin in your past. Maybe there is out-of-control anger that has damaged the spirit of others in your past. Maybe you quit something that's in your past. And when we don't know how to bring Christ's forgiveness and healing into that shame, and it just sits on us like a condemning judge. What do we do in our minds to justify ourselves? What do we do to prove that we're not that bad? Well, we do a little inventory, and we search around, and we say to ourselves, well, at least I'm a great parent. Or we say, well, at least I give at my church. Or we say, well, at least I live in a nice home in a respectable neighborhood. Or we say, at least I rarely miss church. Or we say, at least I volunteer to help the homeless. Or we say, at least I'm a good pastor. Do you see what we're doing there? Do you see how at that moment we don't really believe the gospel? But are still trying to justify ourselves, prove our merit through a works righteousness, through finding a shred of goodness within us to establish my righteousness. The telltale sign that we are walking in self-righteousness Here's a telltale sign that we're doing this is that we condemn the person who does not rise up to our measure. We condemn the bad parent. We condemn the person who does not live in a respectable neighborhood. We condemn the person who is not as socially conscious as I am. And the gospel becomes distorted in your own heart, losing its power to heal. And to empty that shame. And sadly, friends, this is how the gospel has become so distorted in our culture. And I'm pointing at myself, I point at us, I point at the Christian church. This is one reason the gospel has become so distorted in our culture it is at the hands of self righteous Christians. Nick, you can come on up. Nick, wherever you are, come on up. My final words this morning is Christians to believers. Again, those of you who are non-Christians, I hope today the grace of God will penetrate your heart and you'll become a follower of Jesus today. And by the way, if that's you this morning, you can talk to me or one of our pastors. You can come up front this morning and talk with one of our prayer team members, and you can say today, I want Christ and his forgiveness. For those of you that are already veterans and followers, here's what I want to say to you this morning. It's still the same amazing grace. (laughs) It's still the same. The same grace that overwhelmed you the day you received Jesus is the same grace that we need today to pour back into our lives Keep applying it, keep believing it, revel in it, preach it to yourself. Don't let your good accomplishments evolve into self-righteousness. Bring Christ's healing into those pockets of shame. Let the gospel heal your heart, be free. Be the free sons and daughters that God says you are. Let's stand and sing together.